Today we're focusing on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This circular letter to the churches in Asia Minor that we call the letter to the Ephesians takes a very personal twist at this point, especially at the start of chapter 3, as Paul reintroduces himself and reminds them of his position and his purpose in writing. Paul sets the scene very vividly in verse 1, where we cannot miss the fact that Paul is writing one of his lockdown letters. First of all today, we're going to see that Paul is inside. Paul is inside. He's facing a government-imposed isolation, most likely in a prison cell in Rome, maybe Caesarea. And as we read that, we might have expected a very different introduction to this chapter. Something like, Paul, prisoner of the state, held by Emperor Nero and his totalitarian regime. But no, he states that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's in chains to Christ and because of Christ. You see, since Paul left Ephesus, there were those who had entered the church or even members of his own fellowship there who had begun to question Paul's legitimacy. That asked how they could possibly trust someone who was now incarcerated in a Roman prison and without any hope of returning to pastor them anytime soon. You know, if God really did want Paul to have an input into their lives, why was he banged up abroad? Or was Paul's imprisonment the sign of God's disapproval or punishment? Was he now facing God's displeasure? And the answer to both of those questions is absolutely not. In fact, Paul's opening verse in chapter 3 suggests the complete opposite, declaring that being in prison is all part of God's plan. He says, I'm in chains with Christ, for Christ. This imprisonment is all to do with Christ, says Paul. Don't you see it? This isn't my ministry all gone wrong. This is God working it all out. Paul is reminding us that you can follow all of God's ways. You can do what he says. You can be one of the greatest missionaries of all time like he was. You can serve God faithfully, but that does not guarantee earthly comforts and safety. None of us are ever exempt from prison cells or cancer cells, being locked up or having to isolate headaches or heartaches, separated from family or suffering because of family. But Paul wants us to be as clear as he is as to our identity as Christians in these times. We are prisoners of Christ Jesus. And that's in a positive sense. What are circumstances we maybe find ourselves in at the moment? Because obscure and frustrating, as uncertain as they might be, we are locked in with him. Our hearts have already been arrested by him and we are his for all of eternity. To see ourselves, as Paul describes, to view our lives with Christ hidden in God. Maybe for some of us who are watching or listening to this today, you've spent 12 weeks looking at the same four walls. Or that house that seems so quiet because there are no visitors. Or that constant niggle of frustration at what not being able to be where we want to be when we want to be there. Or that hoped-for moment that's all but gone. The news that came to you and you have no way of changing it, overturning it, or running from it. Let me ask you, what appears to be your prison cell just now? What has you surrounded that you cannot escape from? Who might it be? What 
might it be? Let us see ourselves as Paul sees himself, locked in with his Lord, joined for all time with Jesus, even with a purpose behind imprisonment. It's the nothing can separate us from the love of Christ episode here in Ephesians. Nothing in all creation, no circumstance, no virus, no disappointment, no depression, no death can break those chains. In fact, for whatever purpose Paul suggests here, God has planned it. But we now come to see that in a physical sense, Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus, but he's there for the sake of the Gentiles. This is our second point today. Paul is inside on behalf of the outsider. Paul is inside on behalf of the outsider because that is what the Gentiles were when it came to faith. It is Paul's passion to bring the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles, to these non-Jews, that has led to this very lockdown. How incredibly ironic, almost unbelievable, isn't it? For any of us who know anything about Paul, formerly known as Saul, he was a Jewish zealot, a Pharisee, steeped in Jewish history, his whole life defined by Jewish culture, his whole reason for living in his early years of his student days, and then as a Pharisee was bound up in Old Testament law. He had a hatred for Christ, a loathing for this Christian church, an unabated zeal to end all its blasphemous talk of Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior, the Messiah of the world. In fact, we read back in Acts chapter 9, he was making his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. His mission that day was to imprison those who'd become despised followers of the way, Christians. Saul was determined to do his part, to crush the church and maintain the Old Testament law. But on that day, as the light from heaven blinded his eyes and a voice from heaven arrested his ears, he asked who it was with such awesome power that could make him fall on his face with such fear. He says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replies in Acts 9, verse 5, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Saul. The Jesus whose legacy Paul was determined to lock up had now captured his heart. He had imprisoned Paul with his love. And as Saul followed the Lord's instructions, he's then led in his blinded state to Ananias, a believer in Damascus who lived in Straight Street, who brought this message in Acts 9 verse 15 to him. Go, God says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, the name of Jesus, to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. From the moment of Paul's conversion, he knew what his message was. It was to bring the good news of Jesus to Gentiles. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 1. It's a fulfillment of Acts chapter 9, verse 15, that the Jewish fanatic Paul was now going to be the greatest of all missionaries to the Gentiles. And so here is Paul, now a prisoner in Rome, arrested for causing public disorder amongst the Jewish communities across the empire, having gone on three long, arduous missionary journeys encompassing thousands of miles and endless suffering, and he's done it all for the Gentiles. 
And then due to his Roman citizenship, having appealed to the highest courts in the land, already standing trial before governors Felix and Festus in Acts 24 and 25, and then King Agrippa of Caesarea in Acts 26, and his appeal to the emperor is waiting to be heard now in Rome. All of this, all of these trials and struggles and miles walked and beatings faced, all for the Gentiles. And now he's in the care of the imperial guard. Most of the book of Acts is a record of Paul's preaching the gospel city to city, being rejected by the Jews, then being received by the Gentiles. And it all comes to a head in Acts 21 and 22 in Jerusalem where the crowd sees them and shouts, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. That scene descends into chaos. Paul takes a beating. The local Roman garrison rescues him and brings order onto the streets. And then Paul asks, can he address the crowd? And he recounts to the crowd, this Jewish gathered crowd, his Damascus Road experience. And he re-emphasized that his mission that day was to do what they were trying to do, crush the church, kill off any notion of Christ, But then he says in verse 21, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Boom. Talk about lighting a fuse. Verse 22 in that chapter said, The crowd listened to Paul until he said that word. What word? The word Gentiles. One word. And at that they raised their voices and they shouted, Rid the earth of this man. He is not fit to live. And you see, this is where we see Paul's calling and conversion colliding. Saul did not choose to be a Christian. He hated Christ. Saul did not choose to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He wanted to kill them. But God arrested him, took hold of his life revealed to him that Jesus Christ is Lord and sent him on his way with one mission in mind, to make Jesus' name known to the Gentiles. Paul reminds his friends in the greater metropolitan district of Ephesus that he is in prison for their sake, we read here. He is behind bars because he was faithful to God's call in his life. Paul was shackled up in Rome because he held tightly to two God-given truths that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus had sent them with this same message to the Gentiles. Verse 2 elaborates on this for us. Do you see it there? Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul has given this specific role to administer grace, which simply means to to be a manager of God's grace, to be a dispenser, a distributor of God's grace, this undeserved gift of God to him, of Jesus Christ, his son. I love the to me, for you description. To me, for you. It's been given to me for you. What God gave, I now pass on, Paul says. What I received, I now share. And you sense this dynamic pulsing through his words. The gospel we receive is to be shared. The good news that saves is the power to do the same with others. 
And whilst none of us are apostles like Paul was, those who have seen the risen Christ face to face, we have all met with Christ if we're Christians in the gospel. We cannot escape our obligation and the same dynamic that what has come to us we share with others. This is not just a task we choose, but if we are Christ's, then it's a job we've been given. You see, Paul turns our view of service for God on its head. We often regard our work for him as something that we choose to do. You know, there's maybe a, a gap in Sunday school or BB or children's church, and we step up and we say, oh, that's something maybe I could choose to do. But whenever, as we've noticed in these days, with our Sundays different, with our halls closed and no activities going on there, does that mean we only do it when church is open? What are we doing now when the doors of the hall aren't open or the church family isn't meeting? What and where are we serving? Who are we serving? To whom are we dispensing and administering and displaying God's grace that we ourselves have received? Even in lockdown, Paul kept giving. Prison was still no restriction to Paul's obsession with God's grace. There were no walls with Paul when it came to the gospel. So let me ask us all today, who are we chained to at the moment? Who is the one person maybe we speak to every day or every few days on the phone? What are the connections that we have that need Christ? I love what Paul writes in his other lockdown letter of Philippians 1 verse 12, where he writes this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, that is being imprisoned, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Similar kind of language, isn't it? Paul's impact on the officers that were guarding him in Rome was such that the gospel was now known throughout Caesar's household. What chains, said Paul, the gospel knows no bounds. These chained up, isolated lockdown days are not a mistake, my friend. Maybe our Savior is in fact stripping it all back and saying, get out of your comfortable buildings. Stop relying on your cozy conversations on a Sunday. Even our fakery as we sometimes turn up on a Sunday for all the wrong reasons. And let God show us what we were actually meant to be. Not just the gathered people, but a scattered people. Yes, secure in Christ, but scattered. So that in our suffering and frustration and disappointment, the thing that matters most and defines our days must be God's grace. That sense of grace that will not allow us to escape the reminder of our past, that we were sinners, dead, hopeless, helpless, without Christ's intervention in Ephesians 1 and 2. But neither will that grace allow us to see ourselves as too small or too weak for the task for which he assigns us. And so Paul is inside on behalf of the outsider. Thirdly, we notice in these few verses today a mystery that's revealed, a mystery that is revealed as Paul opens what was once closed. The message that Paul was to share with the Gentiles is described twice in these verses as a mystery. In verse 3, the mystery made known to me by revelation. And then again in verse 4, and his insight into the mystery of Christ. It comes from the Greek word mysterion, which actually carries a very different meaning to our English word mystery. 
When we hear the word mystery today, we think of Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot, or maybe some of our young people think of escape rooms they've done and clues that need solving to work out a puzzle. Whilst the Greeks and the Romans saw it more as a term to express things that were once hidden but are now revealed, they're now public for anyone to see. It reminds me of a time when I served in a previous congregation where there was a gentleman who always sat upstairs in the balcony. He was very dapper and well turned out, and he wore a very obvious toupee, or wig, that is. Now, when I say it was very obvious, it wasn't very obvious until one Sunday when he leant forward to pray on our morning service and it slid off his bald head and floated down from the balcony and into the pews on the ground floor where a little lad who didn't have his eyes closed picked it up and exclaimed, I found someone's hair. What had been a secret was now out and everyone knew. It was well hidden, but now it was an obvious fact. It was revealed. And that is the kind of tone of the mystery of Ephesians 3, 3 to 6. Paul in verse 3 tells us that he had already shared with us the writings in chapters 1 and 2, the wonderful revealed mystery of what God has done for us in Christ. It's there exposed for us all to see. It was not a mystery in an obscure way, but it was a truth not known. Now it was revealed for anyone from anywhere. It was an open secret. And again, it was all of God's grace. Look at verse 2. It was given to Paul. He did not earn it. He received it. Verse 3. It was made known to Paul. He didn't go looking for it. Rather, God came looking for him. This mystery, now revealed, verse 4, focuses in on Christ. And verse 5 explains it further. For something exciting and fresh and brand new came to the world when Jesus made his appearance. We read, in previous generations, this was not known. It was a secret hidden. But Jesus finally brought the way of salvation that God had promised from all eternity. In other words, all of the Old Testament was gasping, longing, waiting for the secret to be made known, for a Messiah to come, a sacrifice for sin to be provided, a cosmic king who would bring justice to the nations, a a beautiful ruler who would care for each one, a solution to the big problems of life and death, like sin and separation from God. God's people needed a saviour. For the law that they loved was also a law in the Old Testament in which they continually failed. As one person has put it, the law, as it were, in the Old Testament, and the truth of what was there, everything was concealed. But in the New Testament, it is now revealed. The Old Testament concealed it. It was there, but it was concealed. And in the New Testament, it was revealed. Or as another writer put it very helpfully, it's a little bit like walking into a dark room. All the furniture's there. It's all there. The the pictures are in place, hang on the wall. The mirrors are there. The ornaments are on the mantelpiece. The the settee and the sofa is sitting in place. It's all there, but you can only see it when you flick the light on. And that's what it's like in the Old Testament. It's all laid out for us there. The need for a sacrifice from sin. The need for a king who will lead us, a Lord over all. And it's only when we step into the New Testament, we flick the light on, we see things as they really are. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews could never be fully sure if they had done enough to be accepted and acceptable before God. 
Paul describes himself like that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. He says he was advancing in Judaism. In other words, he was a really prolific Jew beyond many of his own age among his people. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God called me by his grace, he revealed his son to me. The salvation that Paul shares came to him by revelation from God. It helped them see that the law-keeping did not save him. Rather, it was Christ who was revealed that saves. It wasn't until Jesus stopped them in his tracks on that day on the Damascus Road that Paul was convinced that his means of salvation was not being dependent on his works, that the more zealous and traditional, conservative and religious he was, the better. No, it was not until Christ came crashing in that he was saved. You see, God's mystery revealed is history's now most open secret, is that God himself is the giver, that he's gracious. He offers nobody's the chance to become somebody's, that there's forgiveness available for sinners. There's hope for the heartbroken. There's life for those who face death. High in the most open, transparent, visible way possible, surrounded by lots of people in the busiest city on the busiest day of the year, hangs a man on a central cross, dying in agony, condemned unjustifiably. Christ God's King is crucified. That is where God's secret is made plain for the world to see because Jesus did not die in secret. We should have been the one whose lives were exposed for what they are. As we so often hide behind the respectability of our clothes and our cars and our homes and our holidays and our jobs and our hobbies, sometimes we mistakenly let it all slip and the mask comes off and people see our sinfulness and it seeps out for what it really is. I find it incredible that despite the fact we are all sinners, we find it so hard to talk or even admit that we sin. But God is the one who shows us the ugliness of our sin because Christ is exposed to the punishment of our sin. As he is stripped bare of all his dignity, as he faces the humiliation of men here on earth, as he carries our sin before the God of heaven, for that day on that Good Friday, Jesus was totally exposed before heaven and earth as God's love was revealed and that eternal salvation mystery has thrown open for all to see. In Jesus, we do not just see how we are saved, but we look at his nail-scarred hands, his bruises and his blood, and we see who saves us. It is Christ who saves. He is the who and the how. He is the one who saves, and it's through him we are saved. God has gone public with this news that Jesus saves. God's great family secret is out for all to see and available for anyone to share in. In other words, God reveals God to us. He says, I have held nothing back. Not one thing have I held back from you for your good and for your salvation. The greatest mystery that God should do that for us is now exposed. Friends, if you're thinking that you can still attain salvation by your goodness or your giving to church or the responsibilities that you carry in the community or that you just think you're a jolly nice person, friends, that's not the way to be saved. That renders Christ's death on the cross useless. 
and pointless and purposeless. But rather, he's there to expose what sin is like. And he's there to reveal his love towards us and how he deals with that sin on our behalf. How foolish we would be not to accept it. The revealed, God-given secret is now wide open for all to see. Salvation is no longer a secret. Nothing is hidden from us anymore. God says to us, my heart, my home, my hope is here for you. As finally today, we notice this is a double mystery because these verses also reveal to us that this mystery is a message for everybody. Verse 6, this mystery is a message for everybody and it brings together those who were once separated. Have a look there at verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see, as a result of the gospel crashing into this world and Jesus' remarkable salvation act, the great dividing wall that separated the Jews, God's Old Testament people, from the Gentiles has been pulled down forever. For it is only in trusting in Christ's atoning work that we can be saved, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, slave or free, soldier or civilian, slave or master, black or white, nationalist or unionist, our previous cultural history, no matter how privileged we are, wealthy or well-known, doesn't matter when it comes to Christ. For in Christ we read of a unity displayed in three beautiful ways that bring enemies together, shattering barriers of hatred and hostility. Verse 6 tells us the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. Do you ever remember that one word that was used in poetry lessons at school that used to send shivers down your spine? Onomatopoeia. Some of us can barely say it, never mind write it. What a word, onomatopoeia. It means using the spoken word in a sentence to make it sound like the very thing you're trying to describe. You know, like the word bubble. You can almost feel and sense the bubble with all those bees that look like bubbles. Light and airy bubble looks and sounds like a bubble shoot. Or hiss, the hiss of a snake. It's written like it sounds. You can hear it and you can even see it in the letters, the S's. Hiss. Well, here Paul masters onomatopoeia. Listen to this sentence in the Greek, and you'll forgive me for my East Belfast attempts at pronouncing it in this way. He writes there, Ta ethne ethnai sun kleronoma sesoma ke sumatocha te espangles en Christo Jesu. There are no less than three words with the hint of the sun, which in Greek means with. Paul is writing in verse 6, with, 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 with. Christian Jews who are fellow heirs with Christian Gentiles, they are of the same body with Christian Gentiles. These former Jews are joint partakers with Christian Gentiles, co-heirs, co-partakers. There is nothing enjoyed by believing Jews which cannot be enjoyed by believing Gentiles. There's a complete witness, a union in Christ. There's no racial divide or social structure or ranking or class system in Christ. 
Now, believe it or not, this is the most controversial passage in Ephesians. As they would have read it together in their little house churches gathered on a Sunday morning. And as they surveyed the differences and the ethnic backgrounds and the seats around that room, there were younger and older, richer and poor. There were slaves and masters. And especially there were Jews and Gentiles. Society would have taught them to hate and despise and reject and be prejudiced against and don't have anything to do with that sort of people. That have spat those words like Gentiles out of their mouth. But here Paul urges their witness to be one of their most powerful witnesses to what Christ can do, making divisions irrelevant, past history, past history, and creating a new race, a new humanity, a new identity, but a people who did not look the same, sound the same, live the same, a people so different that nothing, literally nothing but God could have brought them together. Klein Snodgrass is a New Testament professor and author and as if his name isn't bad enough, I didn't want to embarrass the poor man by a photograph on the internet which doesn't do him any justice. So I've simply got a quote from this man, Klein Snodgrass, but it's profound and it's helpful as he says this. What this text underscores is that unity is not some non-essential, some afterthought or some byproduct of the faith, but is at the heart of Christianity. The revelation that came in Christ was a revelation about unity. If we do not proclaim unity, we have not proclaimed the gospel. If we do not live unity, we have missed the gospel's impact. The attitude that we have towards others is foundational. It's a gospel issue. For we live in a day and age when people go to church to see what they can get out of it. If it ticks every box that they're looking for, from music style to theology to decor to children's provision, how easily our worship can be such a self-serving activity. But our presence together, when we join together, we are protesting against the divisions that exist in our world. It's a witness and a witness to the world. And we are not to stop with who is sitting there. How deeply discouraging it is whenever the established Le Comfort family or the Mainstay Union Road member says, who was that there today? Or what is that family doing here? Don't you know who they are? For when we communicate that, we realize that we've lost what church is and we've fundamentally forgotten that we were once lost, strangers to God's family outside of God's blessings because church isn't about you or me. Church is about us. That's the mystery. That's God's family, and that is why we should be straining every effort to extend this gospel invitation to our neighbors who are GAA-wearing Sinn Féin voters, to our Muslim friends, to our traditional collarette-wearing orange gear but no Christian idea people, friends and family members, or gym freaks who can deadlift anything right through to the petrol-head motor fanatics, from the elderly lady cooped up in her nursing home bed set to the kid at school that no one can relate to. May our churches celebrate the diversity in our unity as we believe Christ can transform and change any heart. And if we don't like it and say, I really don't feel comfortable with this person or that person, well, maybe heaven isn't for us because that's where we'll see the greatest diversity and unity. Maybe salvation hasn't really gripped us yet. 
Many of you know the story of Jim Elliot and the five missionary martyrs killed in the Ecuadorian rainforest in the 1950s. But the death of these men who were trying to reach the Ica Indians did not end there as another group of missionaries followed this up and began to see God open up in an amazing way the Stone Age barbaric tribe who were living in that way even in the 20th century. Steve Saint is the son of Nate Saint, the missionary pilot who was martyred on that day. And Steve joined his aunt and a missionary team as they reached out to the very people who had killed his father. Steve Saint writes about Minkai, who's on the screen there, whose name means wasp. And he only recently died on April the 28th, 2020, at home in his tiny village in Ecuador. He was somewhere between 88 and 91 years of age. He didn't know how to count. But yet many, many of his children and great-grandchildren and tens of thousands of people across the world saw him as proof of God's redeeming and transforming power. When Grandfather Minkai helped five other Iker warriors spear my father, Nate Saint, to death on that river in 1956, there was no reason to believe anyone outside of his small clan and the five bereaved families would ever take note of that incident. But when a search party finally found their five spear-riddled bodies, the question was why. The term tragedy accompanied virtually every Christian news article as news of this seemingly senseless killing spread across the world. But 64 long years later, it seems clear that Genesis 50 verse 20 was about to come true, where Joseph said to his brothers, what man meant for evil... God meant for good. There has been no greater ambassador of that message than the life of Grandfather Minkai. Minkai's most frequent speaking theme was, we lived angry, hating, killing lives until they brought us God's markings in God's book. Now those of us who walk God's trail live happily and in peace. But then he would often turn to the missionaries and ask, how long did you have God's markings? before you brought them to us. Maybe if we had known sooner of the Creator and we did not see well that we were living angry, hating, killing lives, we would have walked God's trail of peace sooner. Steve Saint goes on, over the years we traveled together, ate together, shared the same room and even spoke together. I have known Minkai since I was a little boy when he took me under his wing. He was one of my dearest friends in this world. Yes, he killed my father, but he loved me and my family. One of my grandsons is named after him. Friends, I think we underestimate this radical, dynamic nature of this greatest of open secrets, the mystery of Christ that reaches out to us and from us in unity and witness and witness. We don't realize what dynamite the gospel really is to transform. It transformed Paul, a persecutor of Christ, into a prisoner for Christ, a devoted Jew, into a servant of the Gentiles. And friends, today, only grace can turn lockdown disappointments into God-given opportunities. May God bless 
this transformational word to each of our hearts. Amen.